The Plumley Pod, episode 51. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today's special guest is Nora Lenz. She is a full time dog care professional. And before you switch off because you don't have a dog, stop right there because this stuff is going to help humans too. All right. This is not just about our furry friends, although Nora is quite the expert, my words, not her, quite the expert with our beloved dogs, cats too, I believe. However, this information that we're going to be sharing with you this morning equally applies in many, many respects to humans. But before I go off telling you that humans can eat chicken, no silly, I didn't say that. I didn't say you could eat raw chicken. I did not say that. You need to listen carefully. Before I do that, Nora, welcome to the podcast. And please, can you start off by telling us how you discovered your genius creation that is rotational monofeeding, please? Hi, Sarah, and thank you so much for inviting me here. I am thrilled that you discovered RMF, and I'm happy to tell you a little bit about my history that started way back in 1987 when I started reading nutrition books for humans and making changes to my own diet. And it wasn't until about the year 2000 that I really got serious with changing my diet. And that's when I saw the health metamorphosis that I saw in myself. And as soon as that happened, and even before that happened, I had started making changes to my animals' diets, but I really didn't know what I was doing at that point. There wasn't a lot of information then. There was no internet, believe it or not. And at least I didn't have the internet till probably the early 2000, late 1999 or something like that. So it was hard to get information, but I decided I did not want to feed my dog and cats commercial food. So I started applying the principles that I had applied to my own health to them. And really what I discovered in changing my diet is that diet is the number one factor that we need to look after if we're going to be healthy or if we're going to have healthy dogs and cats. It's the number one factor. You cannot worry about anything else as long as the diet is right, literally. So When I started applying these things, I got some things wrong and my animals suffered because of it. But eventually I found a formula that really worked and I applied it to my own animals and everybody that I knew that I could give advice to applied it to their animals. And there was just success across the board. Just diseases went away, problems went away. They just didn't recur. Animals didn't have to be taken to the vet for decades. And then I decided to put the information out in book form, which I did in around the year 2010. I had my first website. It kind of gathered dust until about 2017. I mean, when I would have maybe 100 visitors to my website every day, and a couple of them would buy a book, or one once a week, somebody would buy a book or something. But I started a Facebook group in 2017, and before that point, I had never used social media, and it really caught fire at that point. And my group grew, and book sales soared. Even though I'm the only one that sells my book, you cannot buy my book on those profit skimmers that like to get between the buying public and authors. You can only buy my book from me on my website, but still, it sold lots of copies. And I've got a great community on Facebook and out there, even among people that don't use social media, they are having success with rotational monofeeding. So that's a bit of the history. It's amazing because the censorship around people who want to talk about human diets is something to behold on places like Facebook. I call it fake book. It's the dark side. I can't abide these censorious platforms. But it's nice and comforting to hear that at least when we're messing with our animals' diets, we're still allowed to talk about that one. So good for you. Yeah, I haven't really experienced a lot of censorship. And I have a feeling it's because we're just kind of under their radar. Yeah, they don't care so much about our pets. I guess, but I don't know. There's not so much power in having us accept the narrative when it comes to our pets. 
as there is when it comes to accepting it for our own bodies. Well, I actually think that this is a really cool way in because there are so many overlaps between human health and animal health and reading your book. And thank you so much for sending me the updated version recently. I've been going through it with my highlighter pen and I'm showing you here been making notes frantically because this stuff all fits together, does it not? And I think you said that you started off with human health conditions that you wanted to fix and then move into the animals, right? Yes. But a lot of people do it the other way around, especially when they discover RMF and they put the principles into place for their dogs and they see diseases go away, disease reverses, doesn't come back. They don't have to go to the vet ever. And they go, well, maybe this would work for humans. And there, it's, there's a bit of a pitfall there because we can't eat exactly the same things as our dogs and cats do, obviously. Maybe it's not so obvious to some people. But yes, there's very much, there's a crossover. And it is, I think, I mean, from the very start, in my mind, it was a backdoor because I really wanted to teach people how to feed themselves to reverse disease. And I found that, it's really hard to teach people how to stop their addictive habits. They just don't want to hear it. They just have kind of blinders on when it comes to that. But if I can teach them how to feed their dogs differently and they see their dogs getting well, it just opens their mind up. It's like a back door into their mind. And it works so well. It's just been brilliant, if I do say so myself. Well, yeah, well, there's so many testimonies now, of course. I noticed that in your book, you have a link to your website to read testimonials by dog owners who are thrilled at the progress their beautiful beasts have made. Really, really incredible results. Can you start off, first of all, by just laying out for the listeners what commercial pet food is really made of? And I'll just put a little health warning on this to the listeners. Guys, you might be having sort of breakfast at Sunday morning. You might not want to eat anything for a little while while Nora covers what exactly your pet's food, commercial pet food, is made of. It's one of the most disgusting things I think I've ever read. I think it's really important to let people know what is in that stuff, even the stuff the vet sells that they say is good for our dogs. Can you go into the gory details for us, please? Well, I think everybody knows that the cheap food is really bad. The people who are trying their best to feed their dogs properly will buy a brand of food from the fancier pet health stores, or they'll go to the vet and buy their food directly from the vet. What really surprises people is that it doesn't matter all that much. Yes, they do use really, really, like I'm talking roadkill, euthanized animals, lab animals that have been killed because they've had toxins injected into them. Those kinds of animals will get used in the cheaper brands. And you might not get those kinds of animals in the so-called premium brands, but there is so much wrong with those so-called premium brands that is mostly covered up with marketing propaganda. Because when you go to these websites of the manufacturers, you see cows in pastures and chickens out in the yard and eating grass and cavorting with each other and wholesome fruits and What they don't mention is that the pet food industry was basically invented to give a marketing outlet or a sales outlet to the waste that is produced by the human food processing industry. And people used to think that that meant cereals, right? Grains and cereals like filler ingredients used to mean grains. Well, today, the new filler ingredient, and it is in every dog food, every cat food, the new filler ingredient is animal fat. Because when humans go to the store and pay $20 a pound for a steak or whatever, they don't want to see something fatty. That fat gets trimmed off and it goes to the rendering plant and the rendering plant sells its stuff to the pet food processing industry. So that fat has to go somewhere. It just Even if you buy whole animals, which is what I advocate doing, buy whole animals like whole chickens, whole pieces of meat, whole quail, turkey, those kinds of things at the store, they still have to be trimmed. And when you start trimming, you see how much fat is on these animals. And like I always say, nature does not fatten up animals for market. This is a concept that has been driven into our heads as being normal and natural. It's just what 
ranchers and farmers do because they have to make a profit, right? Well, they sell that fat to a middleman and that middleman sells the fat to somebody else. And then that somebody else sells the stuff to the retailer and it, nobody cuts it off along the way. Nobody takes the fat away. It It's all the way down to you. And if you know how to convert these very vague, oblique ingredients lists or guaranteed analyses on the pet food labels, if you know how to properly in, interpret those, and there are converters online that you can use for this purpose, they will say that their product is 10% fat by weight because they know that pet owners don't want to feed fat to their dogs and cats. But when you run these numbers through a converter, you find out that it's 60%. Well, what they do is they base those smaller numbers on weight. And fat is very lightweight. It weighs much less than water. It weighs much less than, of course it does. That's why we all float, right? And it weighs much less than protein. So it can look like it's a tiny little amount on the label if you use weight. That's how they get away with saying that milk product that is 36% fat by calorie is actually 2% fat. And the 2% fat is what appears on the label. It's the same with pet food. So that's the rundown on commercial food. And there is tons of information. There are lots of people exposing what is in pet food, what is in commercial pet food. What they are typically offering as an alternative is still pretty darn unacceptable to me because it basically copies what the commercial food processors are doing. Mixing a bunch of foods that really aren't appropriate for dogs in the first place, putting it all in the crock pot and calling that dog food. Well, it looks like stew to us. Dogs don't eat stew. They're not supposed to eat stew. But for some reason, we think that's a perfect food for dogs. But anyway, we can get into the specifics of what dogs should be fed. But that's the lowdown on commercial food. When I read that section in your book, I think it's part one, where you go into what the commercial pet food industry is doing to your dog's food, it reminded me of the Rockefellers and their involvement in human medicine. Yeah. For example, big oil needed to get rid of its waste products. Mm-hmm. So you know, the pet chemical industry had a lot of byproduct that they needed to dispose of, quote unquote, ethically, otherwise they would get fined and stuff. Well, this was the beginning of chemicals to treat diseases. Right. This was the beginning of the Rockefeller School of Medicine, which almost all doctors have been through, whether that's in America or whether it's here in Europe. And the way you describe the byproducts of human food, the nasty stuff being used for our animals, yeah, I just connected it straight away and went, oh, this is the problem we're having. A lot of this stuff actually makes us sick. This is causing the disease. It's not just a case of, oh, our pets get sick, let's give them a healthy diet. No, the stuff that you are told by the vet to feed your dog, in very many cases, is making them sick. It's the cause of disease, is it not? And how did you find that? How did you figure that out? How did you know? Well, in almost all cases, it just makes disease worse. It just drives it farther into the body. And whatever goes on in the medical world, you can just basically double or triple when it comes to vets, because sometimes they'll even find that drugs that have been taken off the market for some reason because the manufacturers have faced legal challenges or whatever, they'll dump it on the dog market. There have been a couple of those that I've discovered, and I have not made a study of that. I'm sure if somebody did, they could find lots of shenanigans going on there. But this is the problem. I've stopped going to the doctor before I stopped taking my dog and cat to the vet. But once I started to put all of those connections in place, I stopped taking my dog and cat to the vet too. And my current dog is six. She's been to the vet once in her life. And that was for a slight back injury. That was not for the preventative, so-called preventatives. My last dog died at age 19 and he did not go to the vet for the last 11 years in his life. And he probably wouldn't have gone to the vet his entire life if I'd had this stuff figured out sooner. But the moment that I figured out that I could change things in his diet and reverse his symptoms... I did everything myself. I had no need for a vet. We're going through a similar process now. We've long ago given up on doctors for human health, long, long ago. We do our own thing. We do our own research. We ask advice of other people who are fit and healthy and are doing their own research. And we seem to do less badly than we used to do by a lot. I haven't been to the doctors in 
at least eight or nine years. It might be over a decade now. I don't know. I haven't been to one the whole time I've lived in France, and that's almost eight years, I think. That's for sure. Basically, because our pet can't talk, we feel guilty and we're like, oh, maybe we should go to the vet because we don't know and the vet knows, which is stupid because we're putting our trust into an authority. We've learned the hard way that putting your trust in an authority is a really, really bad place to be. If you're going to trust authority, you at least need to inform yourself first. So we realized that, hang on a minute, we don't go to the doctors, but we're taking our dog to the dog doctor, also known as a vet. This can't be good. We need to do something else. And this is when we found your website and found your book because we'd already decided like, no, we're not doing this anymore. We're never going to that vet again. We're going to figure this out for ourselves like we have to do with our own health. And of course, diet is a massive component. Sleep, sleeping properly, which dogs don't seem to have much problems with, but humans sometimes do. Sleep and diet. So yeah, that's where we're at. When did you first realize that, oh, wow, if I put this food into my dog, he gets better. If I put this food into my dog, he gets worse. What was the point where you realized that what you'd learned about yourself was actually working for the dogs too? Well, my last dog's problem that really drove me into looking at diet to fix what was going on with him, he was a Cocker Spaniel and he had the long ears and he had chronic ear inflammation. And he finally went deaf at age nine. And I was appalled that I was not able to figure out what had caused him to go deaf. So I really, I just, I guess I just did some deep thinking about what was wrong with what I was feeding him. And what I discovered is that I was just feeding him too much fat. I wasn't aware of the fat issue and how much fat there is in ground meats. They will lie on the labels of ground meats, just like they lie on the labels of everything else. So even if something says lean, it's not lean. But once I started playing with his diet in terms of the fat content. I just got most of the fat out of his diet. He never had another ear inflammation in his life. And that was 11 more years, even though there was nerve damage done by the last time that his ears became very inflamed and that nerve damage didn't repair itself. He was still deaf for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, that was my and his price to pay for my previous ignorance. But I thought if I can at least prevent him from having these recurring so-called infections, then other people can prevent deafness completely in their dogs and other issues that are similarly caused by all of this fat consumption. And we will need to talk about the difference between the domestic dog's diet and the wild dog's diet with regard to fat, because people are probably wondering why I'm so focused on fat. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Lay out for us. Because you talk a lot about the sort of evolution of dogs and their domestication. And however many years it was, it's still far too many. And for us to just suddenly expect dogs to be eating like a human or eating in a similar way to how humans eat. And yeah, really interesting, the definitions that you use and the way you take us through it in your book about how to take this wild diet or as close as you can to a wild diet and bring it into the home in a responsible and safe manner. Yeah, please tell us how to do it. Tell us what you did. Well, the really big advantage that we have when it comes to researching dog diets is we have a wild model to still look at. We don't have any wild humans to look at. There are no wild humans in the world. And no, the Maasai are not wild. And no, the Inuits are not wild. We have no wild humans to model ourselves after. But we have wild dogs. And the researchers, unfortunately, don't focus a lot on what they eat. But when they do talk about what the animals eat, and that's changing. There are some studies, some really good work that's being done now that does track everything that they eat. But still, we've had that information for a long time. And when we look out at what dogs eat in the wild, they eat extremely lean animals. And in my book, I have a picture of a dressed, as in without the fur and skin, rabbit, farmed rabbit next to a similarly dressed uh, wild rabbit, and you can see what we're looking at. The flesh is white. It's all it's got fatty globs everywhere, and that just doesn't exist on the wild rabbit. Well, that wild rabbit is what our dogs need. That's what our dogs need, not the farmed rabbit. But unfortunately, the farmed rabbit is what we have access to. But rabbits are just one part of the picture. They also eat ungulates. But when do wolves eat ungulates the most? They eat the weak ungulates. They eat the underfed, nearly starving ungulates. 
in the winter. And that means those deer and elk and other hooved beasts are going to be at their leanest. And that's what dogs are, that's what they evolved eating. They eat fish. Fish are relatively fatty, but still compared to farmed animals, they're actually very lean. So the closer we can get to feeding those kinds of animals to our dogs as we can get, the better. And since we don't have access to wild animals, it's practically impossible. I mean, I can't tell people to go out and hunt or raise chickens in their backyard or whatever. It's just not practical. So instead, what we have to do is we have to do the best we can buying agricultural products and trimming them of fat and trying to get, trying to replicate the bone to meat ratio that you would find on a typical wild animal. And there's no perfect number for that. It's most likely a range and it's not as difficult as everybody wants to make it seem. There's, I'm not the first person who has looked out in nature and decided that I wanted to feed my dog according to what wolves eat. There's a community called the Prey Model Raw Feeding Community who does the same, but they're really not privy to this. They just haven't figured out this part about fat. So they don't limit fat. And very often people who even people who discover PMR feeding will be feeding their dogs a diet that's too high in fat. And so they don't get the results that they want and they find themselves still going to the vet or still dealing with symptoms or allergies, so-called allergies or whatever. So rotational monofeeding or RMF not only decreases the fat by, by trimming fats from the whole animals that I recommend that people buy or whole animal parts, it also rotates into the diet certain biologically appropriate plant foods. And what the researchers have been discovering, especially recently, is that plant foods constitute a bigger part of their diet than had previously been supposed. Like, for example, lots of dogs have been, wild dogs have been tracked eating Fruits And when they find fruits, they will gorge on fruits, especially if they've not been able to find prey. There is no doubt in anybody's mind that prey is the number one food of dogs and cats. We're mainly talking about dogs right here. When I say that secondary foods, plants are secondary foods for dogs. And the main plant foods that dogs like to eat are fruits. And what's been discovered just in the last few years is there's a group of wolves, many groups of wolves in northern Minnesota that are being tracked that in the summer when they don't have access to these ungulates because the ungulates get very strong when there's foliage for them to eat and they're harder for the dogs to catch. So they will sometimes not be able to get prey at all. So they will go to the blueberry field and they will gorge on blueberries. And what the researchers found is when they watch what these wolves are eating between, say, mid-July and the end of August, up to 83% of their daily intake is blueberries. And even the mothers who have pups back at the den will fill their bellies with blueberries and go back to the den and regurgitate them for pups. And that's the first time that's ever been observed. In fact, I think there is footage on YouTube showing wolves foraging, collared wolves, foraging on blueberries in the field. And that's the first time I think that's ever been witnessed. So I think there's just been a whole lot less attention paid to this information because the people who are doing the research and the people who really need this information, you and me, pet owners, there's a big gap between us, right? I mean, they don't care. They're looking at the behaviors of the wolves and they're looking for the little pathogen boogeyman and whatnot. We can get into that too. But And we just want our, our animals to be healthy. So there's huge, somebody's got to connect the two. And when we discover how important this information is for our dogs and cats, we can go to the research community and say, hey, we want more of this information. We want to know exactly what they're eating every day and what plant foods are they eating? What are they eating besides prey foods? And those kinds of questions. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a connection between the realities of what wolves eat and how we can use that information. I would have struggled with this information had I not had a chocolate Labrador who are known for enjoying food. And he nicked a strawberry. And I, I was like, no, he didn't. And I'm like, offer him one. And my husband offered him one and he ate it. And I'm like, 
what does he do? Well, I was never expecting this Labrador, this chocolate beast to eat strawberries. Yeah. But I hadn't come across your book at the time. And I, I observed that and that stuck with me so that when I read your book, I went, ah, I know this is true because I've seen the dog nick a strawberry. And then when he's offered one, he will actually eat it. And I would never have guessed that. I would have never have thought to feed a dog a strawberry. I would have thought that was crazy, right? Dogs actually favor sweet fruits. They like sweet fruits and strawberries the way we buy them in the store are, I mean, I keep buying them. I keep, they look great. They look beautiful. They always sucker me in. I buy them and they taste like lemons. So if you can get your dog and glabs are known to eat everything and anything, but if you can get your dog to eat strawberries, that means they will eat other foods with relish, apples, plums, peaches, bananas, grapes. Yes, they can eat grapes. <laughs> even ate carrots oh yeah carrots carrots require a little chewing so they can tend to come through in the poop in whatever form they were chewed into which means they didn't really get absorbed but sure and a lot of people still feed their dogs carrots for their crunch value it's entertaining i think for the dog to sit down and chew a whole carrot or whatever i think people perceive that but they can't really make use of it unless it's very well cooked and that's breaks down the starches starches in the food so they can make you we did it on your say so yeah we fed him cooked carrots we were trying some of the stuff that we'd read in your book because i was like and my husband's like no way is he going to eat carrots i'm like you watch you watch you will eat these carrots trust me he's going to eat these carrots and he did eat the carrots he ate them all how lucky that you have a lab because a lot of dogs will balk at first at eating plant foods and it's just that it's unfamiliar and there's another phenomenon that goes into that too because dogs regard plant foods as secondary foods and historically they have only eaten them when they can't get prey well when a dog is being fed commercial pet food every day they have plenty of reserves on their body they're getting a message from their body saying we don't need to eat secondary foods right now we have plenty of fuel right here on board so so they will pass up the opportunity to eat fruit it doesn't sometimes you actually have to make sure that the dog is hungry. And that might mean having them go without food for a day or maybe even two days. And believe it or not, that is healthy for dogs. That is healthy. We tried it. I can't remember which fruits. It might have been pear. We tried to feed him some fruits in the morning and he wouldn't have it. He wouldn't eat it at all. He'd eaten nothing since the previous night. Anyway, later the same day, when he was hungry, because he'd skipped a meal, probably for the first time in his entire life, bearing in mind he's a Labrador and they love eating, he ate them. When we got him some new pears later that day, he went and ate them. It's like, see, he will take what you call secondary food when he's hungry, or presumably he'll take even stuff that he's really not keen on if we made him fast for longer. That was like a little litmus test. And it's like, he will eat this stuff. He will. It's just, if he's not that hungry, then yeah, he shoves his nose up because it's not steak or it's not a chicken or it's, right. it's not something he prefers. But that's like some humans, isn't it? And it's not only that, it's that if there is still food in the stomach from the previous meal, a dog will know instinctively that they can't eat fruit on top of that because the fruit is going to sit there on top of that other meal that's going to take longer to digest. And fruit ferments very fast if it's not digested. It digests and it ferments very fast. So when those fermentation byproducts start to build up on top of the denser food that it's sitting on top of, the body will sometimes choose to go, oh, I'm not even going to try to digest this mess and you'll have vomiting on your hands. So dogs will sometimes perceive that and they will forego the fruit and it's perfectly legitimate. It's not a personality quirk. It's not your dog hating fruit. It's not, it's nothing like that. It's biological. It's physiological. Yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant moment when you realize that, oh, my animal will eat healthy food, what I would perceive to be more healthy food. He will eat plants. He will. Like I said, I never thought until I saw him nick the strawberry that time. And then I read your book and then we tried some things. I was like, wow, this is amazing. There's something in this. So take us through. My dog, for example, he has some real bad earwax. He really struggles. We were foolish. We took him to the vet. This is quite a long, this is years ago now. This is prior to the, you know what, the alleged plague of the last three years. So prior to that, it must be 2018, 2019. Annoyingly, because we wouldn't have, we haven't seen a doctor for way longer than that. But anyway, we took him and I was really unhappy about the way the vet treated him. He was quite rough with his ears and he shoved this lotion down and used some sort of pump action and the dog yelped. And my dog's really tough. Like my dog is really, really tough. Even if you stand on my dog's paw by accident, he doesn't yelp. He's a tough guy. And I was really upset with how the vet had behaved. 
Anyway, after washing the dog's ears out with this solution, nothing happened. The earwax didn't go away. If anything, it came back even worse than it had been before we tried this pharma treatment. So that was the end of that experiment and then on to diet. So what does somebody like me who's decided, right, this pharma garbage isn't working, my dog still has waxy ears, where does somebody like me start? Assuming I haven't read the book and I don't know what I'm asking, like, what do we do first? Right. Well, I'm so glad you brought up ears because that's what led me into all of this. And once you understand what is going on with the ears and what the body's doing with that channel, it's really appalling to see the nonsense that comes out of the vet industry because they not only will put things in there, they will take a bottle and squeeze it so that it goes way down. And that's completely crazy to be putting these these pharmaceutical products and cleansers so far down into the ear canal. And then what they do is they squish it around and then they stick their Q-tips in there and try to get as much dirt out as possible. And they teach owners how to do this and they and owners do follow up at home. And then of course, in three or four or five months time, they find themselves back at the vet with the recurring, and then the vet says, you haven't been cleaning enough. So then the owner goes home and starts cleaning every day. I mean, I know people who do this. makes me crazy. It does not make any difference because what's happening is when the primary channels of elimination in the body, the body is set up to, to eliminate only a certain amount of waste every day. And when that limit is reached, the body will look for other outlets. And in dogs, the most common outlets are skin and ears. And then it starts to shut down appetite and maybe even vomiting and diarrhea and other things like that. But skin and ears is so common. And what we need to attend to, what we need to focus on is what's creating all of this waste in my dog's body that has to come out his ears. And I guarantee you that there is not a single bet on earth who will tell you this? I have a video on my YouTube channel about ear, so-called ear infections, what causes them and how to deal with them for so they go away forever. And this is information that is not shared by vets because it doesn't matter if you go to a holistic vet or a naturopathic vet or however they market themselves, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to blame what's going on in your dog's ears on the microbes that are there eating the waste. So the microbes come in, the bacteria come in to eat the waste. They find these bacteria and these yeasts in the waste, and they go, well, this is the problem. These little critters brought the problem. No. It's like, no, where did the waste come from? No. Where did the garbage come from in the first place? And this is the thing that really grinds my gears about all medicine. They're always treating symptoms. They are never treating the cause. And this is something that has blighted my medical history, that of my family, and now my dog. And it's just enough. I'm so sick of it. So sick of these people. I'm so with you. What is causing that garbage that the bacteria is feeding on? If there was no rubbish, there'd be no flies around the rubbish kind of thing, like you say, right? Right. You're describing in your book like the trash can. Dirty trash cans attract flies. Clean trash cans don't. Right. This is the way we need to start thinking, right, about what's going on with our dogs and with ourselves. And that's why the germ theory is so important to the medical industry, because when they talk about causes, they always want to look at that microbe. And when they talk about the microbe, they're the only ones that have the weapons. That leaves us dependent on them. And they know that. They've known it for 150 years since this nonsense was invented. So whatever, like you said, whatever goes for human medicine goes double for dog medicine because they not only will blame the whatever problems a dog is having on microbes, they will frighten people into cooking food and continuing to feed commercial food by telling them that they're going to be sickened by feeding raw meat or by handling raw meat, which is also 100% nonsense. And for my private subscribers, I have also made videos of myself feeding my dog chicken with the same hand that I am eating grapes with. So I'll give my dog a bite of chicken and then I'll grab a grape and eat it myself. 
And I do wipe my hand on a paper towel because I don't like to eat liquid, the liquid from, but there's still germs there. There's still germs there. And I don't get sick. I don't follow any of the nonsense cleansing, sterilization rituals, because that's buying into the nonsense. It's just not. During the so-called plague, and I'm being very polite today, I normally call it something much ruder on here, but out of respect for your audience too, during the plague, the only person that would let me into their shop without a muzzle was the butcher. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Now, I refuse to wear one, anywhere. But I live in southwest France and it was compulsory for everybody everywhere, even in the street during outdoor markets. Now I completely refuse. I never wore one and I never will. And the only person that didn't refuse me was the butcher. And I thought, yeah, because you know the truth about microbes and bacteria. You know that it's BS, you know. And I came home and said to my husband, that's why he's letting me in his shop. He was going along with it because he had to, otherwise they would have closed him down. However, when it came down to it, I walked into his shop once a week, every week, and guess what? Nobody got sick. Yeah. I didn't do any of the hand cleansing. I didn't do any of the muzzle wearing. I did none of it. I never took an experimental shot. Of course I didn't. I'm not crazy, nor am I a lab rat. And that guy, and I thought, yeah, it's because he knows the truth about bacteria because he handles raw meat every single day. Yeah. And he'll, he will know that it's nonsense. Right. Exactly. Very very important (laughs) insight there. Yeah, we get clues if we're awake. Yeah, so it was right there in front of us. To get back to your question about where you would start with an ear issue like that is all you need to do is just start feeding them properly. You don't need to treat it. If you want to clean it out, it's uncomfortable for dogs to have stuff poked into their ears. I don't really recommend people doing that. I've never cleaned my dog's ears and she's a Cocker Spaniel. It will just dry up. Your ear, the ears will become clean if the waste is going out through the primary elimination channels instead of being forced out these other outlets. That's what we need to attend to. So you just follow the instructions in the book, and they're a lot more. I told you I'm putting out an update in a couple of weeks of the book, and they are the instructions are a lot more explicit in the new book than they were in the old. People won't have any problem at all, and it's already. I consider it a quick start guide because it's only like 100 pages as it in its current form. The updated version will be around 170 pages, but still, it's a quick start guide. It was designed to make people independent. I've told people over and over, I don't want to be anybody's guru. I don't want anybody to be dependent on me. I don't want to replace one dependency with another. I want them to be able to think the way I do when my dog has a symptom. Well, what could be going on here? And what do I need to adjust? Because when you find out that you start, when you start making those adjustments and it corrects the symptom, you recognize your power. You recognize how much power you've had all along. We never needed those vet bills. We never needed those chemicals. We never needed my dog squealing because he doesn't like the way the vet's roughly treating his ears, bless him. Yeah, it's uh, it's so frustrating when you realize, and this just fell into my hand by chance because I was looking for something better than Big Pharma and their vets. And there it is right there, you know, change the diet. So what, for the benefit of people who haven't yet had a chance to read your book, how does this rotational monofeeding actually work? What's the system? What's the thinking behind it? And what do you do? What are the nuts and bolts of it? Well, the primary food of dogs, like we said before, is meat. And what we just what we have to decide is, and this is based on age and the condition of the dog and a couple of other factors too, which are all explained in the book. But based on all of that, we just need to decide how often we're going to feed meat to our dogs. And anybody who's unsure about that can feed their dog meat every other day. And on the other days, on the alternating days, they can either fast the dog, which is sound, it's kind of radical for some people. So in RMF, in rotational monofeeding, we replace the fasting day for those who, avert, who are averse to fasting with plant food days. And if, you're, if you have a lab, it's going to be easy because you can get them. You can always find plant foods that they will eat. And I have many listed in the book. If they won't eat fruit... I've very rarely seen a dog that will pass up a meal of cooked yams and cooked sweet potatoes, any cooked sweet tuber, as long as it is cooked. I mean, if you try to give a raw yam to a dog, they're going to chew it into pieces and the pieces are going to come out in the poop. But if you cook it, the starches are turned to simple sugars, which they are able to digest. And they love that. And it gives them a break 
from this animal fat that they eat on the other days because we, even though we try to trim as much fat as we can, we can't get too meticulous about it. And there's lots of fat, say, on a chicken that we can't trim, like the fat that is between the rib cage or whatever. And there's lots of fat that, besides that, that can't be trimmed. But, and you can start with one to one. And if you decide your dog is looking a little underweight, you can make it two to one, two meat days to a plant day, and then start the meat days over again. Or you can do three to one, three meat days, one plant day. Or you can do two meat days and a fast day and a fruit day. A lot of people do that one. There are all kinds of different rotations. And this is how it's super customizable to your dog and your dog's condition. I can see my husband cringing at the idea of giving a fast day to a Labrador. He will feel so guilty if he's eating and his beloved Labrador's not. I'm like, oh, we have to rethink this. We have to kind of, what do I say? Like, my husband's wonderful and he wants the best for our beautiful dog. Of course he does. But he's the kind of guy that's going to feel guilty because he's fasting a, a dog that effectively loves loves eating. The dog loves eating more than we do. It's what he does. He is not alone. What do I do? He is not alone. <laughs> and I hope you prevail because we have noted that, I mean, my Facebook group has 18,000 members, probably 19,000 by now. And it is 90, probably 98% female. And this reluctant husband syndrome is something that we have noted from the very first. People will say, I really want to do this, but my husband is having fits. He thinks we're going out on a limb here. We're doing something risky. It's the same in home education. This is exactly the same. So I teach guerrilla education is what I do. I teach an alternate form of education, education away from the influence of the state. And I encourage parents to build their own curriculum around the individual child or their individual children. So if you've got three kids, you'll have three curricula in your house. Wonderful. But it's the majority. It's mostly women. I'm mostly dealing with mums, not dads. And we have, and there's plenty of mums who want to be having their children completely removed from the indoctrination centers, the schools, but their fathers are objecting. Very interesting. What is very, very interesting. I, I think it's because <laughs> men are shaped in our culture to want to stay with what they perceive to be safe and conventional because they're the providers, they're responsible for everybody. And, you know, that, I mean, I'm sure that's part of it, but it's really a struggle for some women. So reluctant husband syndrome, I'll have to borrow that. That's wonderful. That completely describes what we're having over in education. <laughs> sure, feel free. <laughs> wonderful. So what do I tell him? What do I say to him when it's like, okay, it's a fast day or do I cheat and do like a plant day instead to appease the husband? But isn't that crazy, appeasing the husband when it's the dog's health? Like, what am I doing? Well, you could go either way, but there is so much information out there about how wild dogs don't eat every day. And when they have the opportunity to eat every day, they don't. Like there are certain populations of wolves that are very well fed. Some of the Yellowstone wolves are very well fed. And even the Prey animals will let the wolves walk amongst them if they know that they've eaten the previous day because they know they're safe. The wolves don't need to eat the day after they eat. And even the when they average out how often wild dogs eat, it's more like every other day or every third day than every day. And bear in mind that they're traveling 40, 50 miles a day to get fed and the animals that they're eating are very lean. So these, this is, these are the factors that we're missing for our dogs. And it's not like some women don't, can't grasp that too. It's not all men. And those are the things that we need to bear in mind when it comes to feeding our dogs, because that will be reflected in their health. Because when we look at those wild dogs, we don't see sickness, that it's a myth that they only live seven years or eight years or nine years or whatever because they don't have veterinary intervention. No, 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 that is not the reason. They have very hazardous lives out there in the wild. Their food fight back, fights back. Their food is two or three times as big as they are, and their food has weapons to use against them. And they have, they even, wolves even kill each other because they get into these terri territorial squabbles and whatnot. But there are all kinds of hazards out there in the wild. Plus, pups don't even make it to their first winter sometimes because food is so scarce. And those are factored into the mortality figures too. And I have long had a suspicion that the wolves that are killed by poaching 
by ranchers without reporting it to anybody, roadkill, all of these trapped, all of those things that also kill wolves. I think those are rolled into the mortality figures too. So we end up with a wild dog only living to be seven years old when they might actually, they're extremely healthy. And this is really important that people understand because if they tend to listen to the vets fear-mongering about microorganisms, the microorganisms that are supposed to be such a problem for our dogs are found on these healthy wolves. And I'm not talking about two or 3% of them. I'm talking about 90 to 100% of them carry the distemper virus, carry the parvovirus, carry the adenovirus, carry heartworm microfilaria. All of these things are endemic. Lyme. I was just reading this morning about how the wolves in northern Minnesota are practically tick magnets because they have so many ticks on them in the spring. But the ticks engorge themselves with blood. They fall off. And then later on in the summer, they're not bothered by ticks anymore. I gather that's a bit of a life cycle. But the point is they they coexist with these factors out there in the wild. Why are they said to be such a problem for our dogs that we need to apply these dangerous pharmaceutical products in order to keep them safe? It makes no sense. makes no sense. There is something protecting those wolves that we can also use to protect our dogs, and it has nothing to do with the pharmaceutical industry. I've left ticks on my dog, and they get bloated and they fall off. And the reason I've left them is because I'm so more likely, if I try to remove them, I'm so more likely to rip the body off and leave the head in, and then it's going to get infected and cause real serious problems to my dog than just to let this thing fall off when it's had enough. I worked that out really early on, that hang on, this is stupid. I'm risking something that I've not really done before. I'm definitely no expert in. I don't like doing it. It's not easy. And if I get it wrong and snap the body off and leave the head in, it causes more harm than just to let the thing drop off in the first place. I thought, no, I'm not doing it. And I also don't put chemicals on my dog either because I wouldn't put the chemicals on myself. So why am I putting them on my dog? And on that one, tell us about fleas, please. Tell us about fleas. Well, fleas get blamed a lot for skin problems. And when dogs chew themselves red and get hot spots and they're very inflamed, the vets will say, oh, your dog has a flea allergy and you have to make sure that every single flea is out of the environment. Well, we can't have our dogs walking around with fleas anyway because they get into our carpets and they overpopulate, right? There's plenty of food for, for fleas here to eat. So we really do have to take flea infestation seriously, or even potential flea infestation seriously. But they are not the big underlying factor in the skin issues that the diet is. It's the diet. The vets, of course, even the holistic ones, will be directing you away from that and into worrying about fleas. Well, wolves even carry a nominal load of fleas. But like I said, we can't let our dogs walk around with fleas, even if it is normal. They're not responsible for disease, and they are not responsible for skin conditions. There's something else going on. And while we're there, let's go for it with their allergies. Oh, my goodness. Allergies, allergies, allergies. Do your thing on allergies, please. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Allergy was a concept that was invented about 120 years ago, and it didn't make any sense then, and it still doesn't make any sense today, but people just accept it because it was so embedded into the popular culture you can't watch anything any movie or tv show from the 60s and i think that's really when this germ thing and the allergy thing really started to be programmed into our heads because people were saying oh i must be allergic to it i don't know what's causing that i it must be an allergy i have this allergy and that allergy and you know we have the boy in the plastic bubble that movie that was made in the 70s where the kid was allergic to everything and allergic to sunlight. And there's something underlying that. And the allergy thing has people focusing on triggers. Yeah. So a dog has a hypersensitivity to a certain innocuous substance. And that means harmless. It's not going to cause the dog harm unless there are already problems within the dog. And what I liken it to is like if you have inflamed skin if you have just healthy skin and you pour lemon juice on it, it doesn't hurt. But if you had have inflamed skin and you pour lemon juice on it, it's going to hurt. And that's because it's the tissue that ex- is extremely hypersensitized and it's 
reacting to those acids. Well, the same thing is happening inside your dog's body when those membranes and those tissues are constantly bathed in the waste products from what the dog is eating. And that creates internal inflammation and the inflammation is what causes the hypersensitivity. So the dog breathes in a little pollen or walks on grass or whatever is being claimed to cause the allergy or trigger the allergy. It's not that. That's only the trigger. This, the underlying problem is still the diet. And I have an allergy video on my YouTube channel as well that explains all of this. And it explains why stuff comes through the skin when it should be going out the, the bowels and the urinary tract and the lungs and elsewhere and the organs that are set up to get rid of and eliminate waste. Yeah, it just makes sense. When you read this book, many, many people who already listen to me about education and whatever will go, ah, yeah, yeah, that, the same. And it, the links that you will make because of the things you already know about Big Pharma, about Big Food, we're just applying this now to the realm of our pets, our beloved animals, and it will make total sense. It will actually click a lot of other things into place for you about human diet, human health, all the interrelated things. Thank you very, very much for writing this book and bringing this information to us because it's vital, isn't it? If we're going to look after our pets and keep the vet away, right. this is what we need to be doing. This is what we must focus on. Right. Well, there is something to be said about food, so-called food allergies, because it's kind of a different part of the allergy problem. And it really doesn't apply there either because usually the foods that are that dogs are said to be allergic to are not appropriate foods for dogs in the first place when the, with the exception of things like chicken and beef. And when people think that their dogs are allergic to chicken and beef, what's usually going on there is that the chicken and beef are cooked. They're in the form of commercial dog food. Or if they're not cooked, they include the fat. And it's the fat that's causing the problem. So it's still not chicken and beef specifically. It is the fat. So I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for picking that up because I did read about that too. And I'm like, yeah, makes sense. Exactly. They just blame, as usual, the most obvious thing. And it's not. It's not. Stop going after symptoms. We're symptom chasing again, aren't we? Oh, what causes this symptom? Let's No, no, let's go to the root cause of all of it. Yeah. Not just the trigger. I mean, the idea of a dog being allergic to grass, isn't that retarded? Yes. Like, what are you talking about? Why would biology have made a dog who needs to run on the grass to catch its food allergic to grass? That makes no sense. No sense at all. Clearly, there's something going on with the dog, that dog, yeah. specific dog. But I should also say, when we were talking about going to the vet and not going to the vet, there are some things that require intervention, unfortunately. And when those things happen, it's my field to navigate. And it's very difficult. It's difficult even for me. But there are some things that we can watch for symptoms. And if we see these symptoms, we can cautiously take our dog to the vet. And those conditions that I'm thinking of are obstruction. When a dog eats something that blocks some channel or other, and they don't poop for a couple of days, that's probably something that's going to have to be looked at. You're going to have to, I've known lots of people who suspect that their dogs had an obstruction and it ended up coming out a few days later, but these dogs usually go ahead and poop in spite of the obstruction. If the obstruction completely closes off that channel and they can't poop, it's something that needs to be looked at. And there's a couple of other conditions too, like bloat. Sometimes dogs will get bloat and labs are predisposed to this because of the depth of their chest. But when they are not able to digest food and they are not able to vomit it, it will sit in the stomach and create gases and the gases will cause the stomach to turn over on itself, which effectively closes the entrance and the exit to and from the stomach. And that condition is fatal within an hour. So you have to get the dog to the vet. So you have to learn how to recognize the symptoms of these things that really do legitimately require intervention. Though it's easy to do though. You don't have to take your dog to the vet every time you see an eye discharge. You don't have to take your dog to the vet every time you see dirty ears or ear irritation or even what are some other things that people they take their dogs to the vets for? Lack of appetite. Your dog doesn't eat for a day. Yeah, lack of appetite could mean something like an obstruction, something serious like that. But 99% of the time, 
the dog is just giving himself a break from the junk that you feed him every day. He's probably fed up of your terrible choice in commercial pet food and is deciding to have a day off. Right. I can't blame Fido for that one. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Right. Listen, thank you so much for sharing this information with us. It's absolutely brilliant. I strongly recommend your book, Rotational Mono Feeding. Please, can you tell people where they can get a copy and let us know about how we can get to your website? And I will, of course, leave links in the description to all the different places we can find you, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, or your website. Yes, I, the website is called rotationalmonofeeding.com. And I have a YouTube channel under my name, Nora Lenz, and also a YouTube channel under Rotational Monofeeding. And I have a large Facebook group that's very supportive. And it's a, it's a really unique community because I don't allow a lot of shenanigans there. I don't allow people to criticize others for giving helpful information. If the helpful information is, if somebody offers a really helpful piece of information that goes against the mainstream and some troll puts a laughing emoticon on that comment, that person goes along with their comment. They're out. I don't allow any of this nonsense that goes on in regular Facebook groups. And I also have, I don't moderate that group anymore, but I moderate a private subscription group myself and it's very active and I make weekly videos where I answer people's questions and talk about topics like this last week. I talked about some research that is showing that wildlife management is focusing on finding their boogeyman pathogens out there in the wild while dogs are being poisoned. 30 dogs can get poisoned. They do the necropsy and they are looking for their little boogeyman viruses instead of realizing that the dogs were poisoned and investigating and finding out who's doing the poisoning and all of that. So I talked about that in my last Q&A. But anyway, I do that every week. And uh, that's a subscription, private subscription group. And so, and it's very supportive. Both communities are very supportive of people coming in. Sounds wonderful and well done to you in the era of the uh, internet troll for keeping house. Absolutely beautiful. I will put all those links in the description, as I said, but just before people go, I wanted to read them the dedication from the front of your book, because I think it really will encourage people to go and do the right thing for their pets. It says, this is my last dog, Coco, who died aged 19 in 2012. He was 15 in this photo and despite his advancing age, had not visited a vet in seven years. He would go the remainder of his life, four more years, without a single day of sickness until 10 days before he died. Coco's long, healthy life and painless, peaceful, non-euthanasia death are things I want for your dog. In the following pages, you'll learn how to give your dog the very best shot at a long, vet-free life. Who wouldn't want that for their furry friend? What a beautiful dedication. I love it. I absolutely love it. Thank you very, very much. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate you coming out to explain a bit more about this. And I urge people to give your book, Rotational Monofeeding, not just to read, get your highlighter pens out, get your pencils out, get your notes in the margin and give it a go. Now, what price having another five, six, seven, eight more years with your dog just because you fed him right? It's not really hard, is it? No, it's not hard at all. It's fun. It's empowering. And I do it for people who are really kind of freaked out and need a helping hand. I do offer consultations, private consultations as well. So beautiful. Well, my dog and I are going to be doing this properly from July. He's actually started already, but uh, I'm going to be applying the things that apply to humans to my, I like experimenting on me. So this is my new thing. And Rascal, my Labrador and I will be we're doing it together. And uh, hopefully that will help the husband not get upset about the fasting days or the plant days because if I'm doing it too then he can't complain right because what about me <laughs> and seeing the changes will have a great effect on him it really will it yeah. has on lots of husbands <laughs> I cannot wait I cannot you know, wait Sarah we just scratched the surface in this video if your community has questions I would be happy to come back and answer them it's really kind of you thank you so much I'm sure they will and I'm sure we will we'll definitely be a after an update. And we want to hear about how successful your relaunch of your book, your newly expanded edition has been. So Nora Lenz, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. And I look forward to catching up with you in the not too distant future. And hopefully we'll have a great story to tell about me and my dog and we'll add it to your testimonials. Fingers crossed for that. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's been a lot of fun. My pleasure. 
Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.